as am I. Okay. Um, I think maybe you introduced the last one. So I'll do this one. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Treknobabble. Uh, this is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And we are sitting down this evening to podcast a Season 1 Voyager episode uh, entitled Phage. Uh, this is an early Voyager episode. Uh, this is only the um, fourth episode, actually. Um, and I have to say, uh, Voyager's off to a pretty strong start so far. Um, you know, these last four have all been really solid uh, with good characterization and, you know, mostly pretty interesting sci-fi ideas. And uh, I would say this one is probably the the peak of these four. Uh, would you agree with that, Kevin? Yeah, I think this is uh, the strongest uh, drama and science fiction credit. And, and you know, Matt and I have gone back and forth and will continue to do so about the value of one over the other when you only get one. But we, we both agree that the best Star Trek is the ones that incorporate both. Uh, and yeah. I think this episode does that pretty solidly. Um, we'll, we'll get there when we get to the scenes, but I, I think it uh, did a great job with the characters responding to the science fiction element of the story, which is spot on. Certainly a highlight of uh, Voyager's first season. So it, it, it balanced well the grand idea with the personal implications. Um, so I, I... Yeah, I agree. I think this is definitely the best Voyager episode so far. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking about these first four episodes. Uh, you know, Caretaker had a pretty strong sci-fi idea. You know, galactic exploring alien. Uh, you know, caretaking a you know, pre-warp civilization. You know, all, all this stuff. And, you know, pulling people from across the galaxy. You know, there might have been a few sort of head-scratching moments, but generally speaking, it was pretty well-done sci-fi. Uh, and then as a character story, I don't think you can impeach Caretaker at all. I mean, it, it really nails several of the characters uh, very well. You know, and then you have uh, Parallax. The sci-fi story was pretty eh. You know, it was just sort of there. It wasn't particularly good. But the character story, again, at Kevin, I mean, the do you think there's anything impeachable about the character story? Uh, no. Uh, internal consistency, believable conflicts. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, yeah, good acting, you know, uh, and they yeah. followed up on the Maquis thing. So, you know, that was really good. And then, you know, time and again, uh, I think it was a pretty well done uh, time travel story. Not like breathtakingly original or anything, but, you know, we don't demand that necessarily as long as it's well done. And, you know, I think that story developed pretty well, a nice rapport between Janeway and Paris, and, you know, we got to see Bilana in her new sort of engineering role, being quite competent. Uh, so as a character story, that one really worked, too. So, I mean, <laughs> there's going to be a point, and we will let you know when that point is, when, you know, things go off the rails a little bit, you know, Hint, it has to do with Kazan, you know. Um, but to this point, uh, Voyager is really strong, like a really strong start. Uh, probably the strongest start since TOS. Um, yeah, and 
I, I'm on record as not being Voyager's biggest fan, but even I will give you... I, I, and I remember thinking um, uh, when I first watched it um, that I liked Caretaker certainly enough to, you know, come back. Um, this, uh, you know, was certainly entertained and intrigued. Um, and Parallax and Time and Again, I don't, I, I don't think they're going to make anyone's top ten list, but they were certainly solid episodes. Um, yeah. I remember th- I remember thinking this was a, a, the one where Bad Review was, like, the one that really grabbed me. And to Voyager's credit, it had the grab-me episode later than the, you know, penultimate episode of Season 1, Lake Deep Space Nine. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, both TNG and Deep Space Nine, whew, I mean, they started out really slow. And, you know, like TNG, what do you have? You've got Farpoint, so you're like, oh, cool, Farpoint, I'm digging this. And then you've got the naked now and you're like oh okay that was all right i guess uh, and then you've got code of honor and you're just like oh my god what is happening here and you've got like <laughs> lonely among us and justice and yeah yeah well you know deep space nine we've thoroughly cataloged the sins of its first well three seasons basically <laughs> um so hey let's just uh, go ahead and get started we can you know when we get there, we'll tell you when Voyager uh, goes awry. Um, I have my DVD primed and ready. I am on uh, Netflix. I'm ready to go. All right. So we will start our videos simultaneously in three, two, one, press play. So, I will say that the setup of the trap, you know, where the Vidians are going to, uh, you know, sort of take advantage, it, it, it is a little creaky. Like, if there were really, you know, thousands of tons of dilithium on some planetoid, why would Neelix know about it and but apparently no, nobody else? The world, yeah. Um... I think they, they, they dip into this well a little often in a single episode way, and it becomes one of my problems with Voyager when it's like there's an they element... They need resources. Right, they need resource X for today, and it's impacting power, and they'll eventually get it in this episode. So it, it kind of... like On the one hand, I appreciate that um, they're thinking about the long-term resource needs of the ship, but then they don't really take that story... Um, as far as they should. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I do like that they're talking about, you know, eating ration packs and stuff like this, which leads into a pretty nice segue into the now revamped mess hall, uh, which has this window uh, and Neelix as cook. Okay, so this is going to be a Neelix-heavy episode. Uh, we might as well talk about Neelix. You know, I've softened on Neelix uh, as I've aged, I guess. I mean, <laughs> I... I... Really... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was really annoyed by him. I remember being just extremely, not Jar Jar level annoyed, but pretty annoyed by Neelix for well, the yeah, first he, couple he, seasons. Yeah, he's not a racial stereotype, so he, I, he could never be Jar Jar levels of annoying. Um, but yeah, I, re- I'm more... I still am annoyed by Neelix. I, I have softened because I have come to appreciate a good actor 
throwing himself into the part separate from what I think the writers gave him. And he does have several very good episodes, like his stuff with Naomi Wildman, um, like even his last story, which I had issues with from a kind of, why are you kicking one of the lead actors off the show in the second to last episode? But we'll leave that aside. I thought he had genuine rapport with the people he was supposed to have rapport with and it made me care about him in the in the episode so so well i really i stopped being annoyed with neelix almost completely once kess left so that leads me to wonder if one of the things that bugged me was the kess relationship and the other thing which i think is you're gonna see in this teaser is that they wrote the character's as being annoyed with Neelix. Right. So I'm wondering if I, like, picked up on that and was annoyed with them. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And and part of my problem is I think the Neelix character came to rely on a couple of jokes a little too heavily, at least especially in the early seasons, where it's like, if everyone, to a man, on that ship, thinks his cooking is awful, verging on dangerous, why is he still the cook? Yeah. Like it's almost like not not to not to be specious or anything, but it's almost shocking that a non-human, not even from that part of the galaxy, would be the chef. Like his his default thinking. Like like wouldn't he just get it horribly wrong all the time just for want of never having encountered humans and what they like to eat before? I mean, it just. I I agree with you. You know, I think they could have played it a little. And they softer. actually did make a few little jokes like this where. It's like Neelix tries to make something that's an Earth delicacy, right. but gets it, you know, just a bit wrong on each ingredient or something. Right. Or ha- has to use local ingredients, and so it's like purple cheese pizza, you know, stuff like that. Like this look on Janeway right here, you know. Like, yeah. Very well. You know, I guess we can't say no to you. And it's like, yes, you can. You could just kick him off the ship. Like if he's really bugging you that much, he doesn't have to be here. So that's I'm starting to feel like maybe that's kind of the thing that was sticking in my head, you know? Yeah, it's like, if, I, they're, I if they're annoyed by him, why is he here? Right, and, like, even his, like, sense of guide, I'm like, wouldn't his, like, like, you could just buy a copy of his charts from him? I mean, like, how much... Well, personal... eventually they're going to flesh it out a bit more that he's sort of running from his past, you know, yeah. on Talax, uh, which is actually pretty decent. Yeah, that uh, was a good episode. Oh, so here's another use of this round corridor. This is two episodes in a row. It was featured uh, heavily in Time and Again also. I'm reasonably certain that is the Jeffrey's tube from The Hunted and the corridor where Kern gets stabbed in Sins of the Father. Oh, yeah. And it's also the the corridor from Star Trek V. That's where the set originated. Oh, yeah. Where uh, Scotty bonks his head on the pipe. That... If that round corridor could talk. Um, yeah, it's seen a lot of Star Trek moments. But uh, yeah, some good. yeah, Neelix did annoy the... I will say, um, one of my favorite Star Trek games, uh, Voyager Elite Force, uh, when they came out with the expansion pack, one of the bonuses was you could just wander around Voyager with no you know, goals and just do stuff. And eventually oh, yeah. I did enjoy shooting Neelix with the photon cannon, because he vaporized in a way that lets you see, like, the outline of Neelix made of light as it dissipated before you were arrested by security, and I enjoy doing that a lot. (laughs) Um, But, I, I, you know, now that you've mentioned it, his stuff with Kess was always creepy. Like, I never... 
in time and again, there's a scene that really kind of bugs me in which Neelix is like poo-pooing her psychic impressions and acting like he knows more than she does about it. And it, it like, it really off put me, you know? Um, so I think, I think it's writing for the most part. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cause, cause Ethan Phillips is good. Yeah, like no, it's just quite good. yeah. That relationship always read as she's in love with you because you rescued her, and you're doing everything you can, consciously or not, to make sure she never doesn't have that opinion of you. And that's kind of creepy and a little abusive. So well, it's like, and hey, there are lots of human relationships like that in our world. You know, I can think of a few off the top of my head. You know, guys trying to keep uh, women from growing out of their relationship, you know, stuff like that. Um, it's just kind of creepy when it's one of your main characters, you know? Right. So Neelix is tagged along on this away mission. Uh, this is the introduction of these uh, wrist lights. Oh, I always wanted a... Th of all... I, I know it's kind of silly that Playmates would sell a flashlight on a strap, but I always <laughs> wanted those, the, the double-barreled like wrist flashlight and it makes sense so you have a free hand while you're looking at stuff i always want a set of those <laughs> yeah apparently they're called a sims light but it's named after the prop director who created it you know mr sims hmm. um and it, it shows up in like more than 40 episodes so this teleplay was worked on by a woman named sky dent uh in addition to brandon braga and she was apparently a journalist who went into a bit of freelancing, um, you know, for TV. Hmm. And so th this was her first and only Star Trek script, I think. Um, and, you know, I guess Braga had to do a rewrite because it was her first script. But, you know, I think it turned out yeah, pretty the, well. Yeah, the idea is there. Well, and she she mentions in some interviews how she really wanted to delve into the the Kess and Neelix relationship you know she liked the idea of writing some romantic scenes in which someone is injured or dying and the other you know is actually dealing with the emotional repercussions all right so you know we've got a bit of a horror style thing going on here right you know with the the creepy guy you know disappearing you know the main character turning around and you know and then the quick cut away from it and i think it's pretty effective actually yeah yeah you know as far as this use of this i presume this is the planet hell set you know expanded a little bit it's not bad you know again i do have to wonder about rogue planetoids with oxygen nitrogen atmospheres you know, somewhere close to 70 degrees, right? Yeah, and, and the ambient light in the subterranean cave has always amused me, but again, it's, it's TV, and you can't do TV in the dark. His I gotta seizure, say, the way that Ethan Phillips is acting here... Yeah, that, that seizure is pretty upsetting. Well, especially when you find out what is What causing. it is, yeah. You know... I mean, this is one of those, like horror sci-fi moments right you know it's like this person's mouth has been sealed you know this person's right. lungs have been removed and you just imagine that happening to you and it's 
it's really viscerally upsetting. Well, it also plays know? in that, like, humans, you know, the, the story of, you know, waking up in the bathtub of ice with a kidney missing. It's a, it's a, it's a very human fear. Well, yeah, so, you know, this is a truly good uh, science fiction story. You know, they're taking something, you know, a fear or a, you know, a, a phenomenon in modern life. They're transporting it to, here's another 47, yeah. by the way. Uh, they're, they're transporting it into this uh, future uh, setting, and they're doing it in a way that, you know, they could never do it. And then they're using the technology of the future to come up with a different kind of solution, you know. So they're going to create holographic organs uh, to, you know, infuse his blood with gases and stuff. And, you know, it creates an actual interesting limitation. It's like he's going to have to be in like an iron lung and stay in sickbay for the rest of his life. And so this brings quality of life issues into play. You know, yeah. uh, do would anybody want to live like that? It's really good. <laughs> to make sure they didn't actually get the lungs back, but, oh, God, having my remains in a micron tolerance of movement for the rest of my life is more terrifying. I do find it kind of questionable that now that Neelix has had his lungs removed, <laughs> they beam the captain down to investigate. <laughs> Everyone, back to the transporter room. we got to find his lungs. It's like, don't yeah. go back in the haunted house. <laughs> well, okay, and they, they did bring security, and they've got phasers and stuff, but still. And it looks like Chakotay is back on the ship. So he's, like, crossing his fingers right now. You know, they've repainted this circular corridor so many times that, you know, it does look reasonably different each time. Oh, totally. I, I was never a big fan of the Paris as medic thing. It always seemed odd to me that there wasn't, like, a second nurse on board. Yeah. I mean, eventually they did give that to Kess as something to do, which was probably a good call. Um, you know... Jennifer Lean had a pretty decent rapport with Robert Picardo as performers, you know, and so the scenes where he was sort of teaching her to be a nurse uh, were pretty good. Yeah. So here they're setting up this idea of a transplant not being possible between an Ocampan and a Talaxian. We're getting a look at more of the sickbay set. Uh, this is like the sort of lab area that's past the doctor's office. This is a really good set, just generally. And, you know, I have to say, looking at the panels and displays and stuff, the way that they've done this sort of dark gray, light gray, uh, you know, color scheme, it's really very handsome. It's a really good-looking uh, design. It's cohesive um, in a way that, you know, even TNG sickbay wasn't. TNG sickbay always seemed to get a room when it needed a room. This was like a fully thought-out set from its inception. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so not just sickbay, but I'm talking about, you know, the ship in general. Like, yeah. they created a really cohesive look that was rock-solid from the start, and, you know, they totally nailed it. Um, it's a, it's just a, a bunch of beautiful sets, you know. And I agree with you that 
the uh, Enterprise Bridge is a better bridge as a bridge. But in terms of, you know, all the color schemes, that's a good Star Trek moment, you know, slapping the Doctor's face. It was a pretty decent effect, too, actually. Yeah, yeah. And it's an, it's, a, it's an elegant way of explaining, you know, how holographic lungs could work, you know? I do question how holographic hemoglobin would attract an oxygen amount. Like, that's one of those questions of the holodeck itself where how precisely is something replicated or projected if it can interact with the real world on the atomic level? Yeah, you know, so... Presumably they're like replicating hemoglobin and putting it into these holographic structures. Right. Like the like the way they could replicate blood plasma or something. Well see that like yeah, like are the like it's holographic like avioli, I assume. Am I using that is that the correct word? Uh but alveoli? Like, thank you. Um but it has to be infusing the real blood with real oxygen, so it, 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 I'm not saying it's impossible, and there might be a blend of replicate. Like we we've talked about this before. Like it, you know, for certain stuff, it does the holodeck just replicate it? So like that, I can understand that. It's just like that's a very powerful holodeck, Jesus. <laughs> well, so now Paris is saying it's better. This option is better than losing it completely, uh, which is a very you know I, I feel like that's the very sort of Federation Starfleet ethos, you know. It's like we have enough optimism about technology to think that even something that seems awful uh, would be better than suicide. Right. They seem very anti-suicide generally. Um, you know, as far as the... We're getting to the point now in terms of technology with like 3D printing and, uh, you know, using... You know, growing things in laboratories, right. you know, growing replacement organs in laboratories that you kind of wonder, like, if you can create a holographic duplicate and you can replicate things, why you couldn't just create physical replacement lungs? Well, I mean, that wasn't that the plot of ethics. I would have I would have liked as a fan a little, you know, shout out to that episode, given that was the point. They they grew a new spine for war. If you think it'd be much yeah. easier to grow a new pair of lungs, but I'm I'm not I'm not upset. No, it none of these things are, you know, fatal flaws in the episode. In some ways, this Vidian uh repository is similar to a scene they eventually end up doing with the Herogen. Yeah, uh, the trophy room. Except these are organs for use and those were trophies. How, do you like the design element of it's like a Vidian logo or something? That's what I assumed it was. It's it's not bad. Uh, those aren't my favorite colors. I don't find it as you know as elegant and interesting as other. Yeah, it's emblems. pretty uninspired as logos go. Um, but it does fit with the prop that we're gonna see of their yeah. you know, tricorder device. Yeah. I mean, I do think there are a lot of pretty good production elements in this episode. These guys seem somewhat resistant to phasers, too. But it, it's a neat-looking prop, this Vidian thing, you know, with these, like, sort of jagged antenna. Yeah. 
you know, it looks sinister and it looks like a serious piece of kit, you know? Yeah. That was something that many times TOS kind of failed with. And even TNG early um, is making either alien props or just general props look uh, effective. Substantial. You know? Yeah. To make them seem like real things that people use in a real world. Yeah. And that was never a problem with Voyager. Like, production-wise, uh, from the pilot, everything looks good. And, yeah, they've learned a ton from TNG, right? Yeah. I will say, I do question how it's possible to restrict an entire body to two microns of movement. I mean, the act of the diaphragm expanding the lungs would theoretically be varied enough each time, but... Again, tiny problem. Tiny problem. Yeah. I mean, it's part of the story. It's like, would you want to survive if you're essentially in an iron lung, you know? How do you feel about the doctor's role in this? Um, I like it because they have... I'm trying to remember, um, because I've been rewatching a bunch of Voyager to prep for our reviews. Um, This is the episode where he discusses with Kess his, like increasing an unexpected role on the ship where he has to be, you know, actual doctor, not just emergency doctor and counselor and all of these things that he doesn't have the resources for. It was, it's a, I think it's coming up. It's a very good conversation with Kess. And I like that they put it in the episode because it, it gives his work a little dimension because he's simultaneously proud of himself for coming up with this and unhappy that he's been called on to do it. And that's interesting. I like the way Ethan Phillips is acting this. You know, he is staying very still, and he's really only moving his eyes. Yeah. Um, but he's also, he's giving it a lot of uh, pathos. You know? Yeah. They're, they're shooting it well, too. It's, it's very claustrophobic. Yeah, shooting it directly over the faces is, is a really good choice. Well, and I, I like this little joke he's going to tell. You know, your ceiling is hideous. I mean, this is very common, you know, for people in hospital, you know, serious, grievous hospital situations. You know, they try to inject a little levity. And it's really to help the others, you know. Right. And it doesn't really work, but it's it's a very real touch. Here's your, I'm a doctor, not a decorator. I think that's the first of these jokes. On Voyager. Voyager. Yeah. This little line gets picked up. Yeah. Are you programmed to sing? That's the thing about Voyager. Like, well, and I like this little thing where Neelix is instantly jealous. And you're right. It's very creepy. (laughs) You know? Like, he's just... He's kind of, he's like a guy you would advise a female friend to break up with. Yeah, like, like, honey, you need to get out of this now. No, yeah, yeah like, and, can't, can't you see the signs? <laughs> and it's not even, because, because like, all abusive forms of jealousy and control, like, it's out of nowhere. Like, it's there is no reason for Neelix to interpret that gesture as anything other than friendly support in the time of crisis. It's not like, 
I mean, eventually Paris is in fact hitting on Kes, but that's not now. When it is, like, it's like it's just creepy. It is, but <laughs> well, we have to assume that this he is under a lot of stress right now, yeah. obviously. But we we kind of have to assume that he's been thinking this already. Yeah. And that he's probably thought this in their past relationship, like he was jealous of Kazon guys hitting on her or something. Uh. <laughs> well, and to be charitable, uh, Jennifer Lean is playing this pretty well. Yeah. You know, they're fighting. She seems like a woman or a girl, I don't know what you want to call her, who is insecure and who on some level knows that he's being a douche, but on another level wants to do everything she can to keep him despite his flaws. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There are so many women like this, you know, in the real world who will stick with the most, you know, disgusting human being. Rationally, they could do so much better yet, you know, they cling to it, uh, you know, passionately. And, you know, it's, of course, an interesting question. Like, how could she possibly break up with him now? She couldn't, you know? Right. On Seinfeld, you know, Elaine is dating the older guy who then has a stroke. And, you know, they make a joke out of it. It's like she she talks to Jerry and she says, so how soon can I break up with him? <laughs> you know, six weeks? All right, anyway. So we're being told that this is a sophisticated scanner and surgical instrument. And that it's far more advanced than a tricorder. And so, I, you know, I like that this sort of element of the sci-fi story, you know, these aliens, the Vidians, uh, are at a roughly you know, parody level of technology with Federation, you know, right. but because of what we're going to discover about them, you know, they've naturally made advances in medicine uh, that far outstrip the Federation. That, that, just, that just makes so much sense. Well, and little, little touches like the conversation that this is a more advanced piece of technology than our analog for it makes them less mythic. It's like they have, they're, they're not magic. They have better technology. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a recurring theme in Star Trek that, you know, um, is that a reuse of the asteroid from Pegasus? It looks very similar. That fissure looks really familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I've known my asteroids very well and <laughs> we've been here before. Um, like, do you see what I'm saying about the... The color schemes. Yeah, oh the... yeah. Well, it's it, it's the it's a very nice evolution of the Elcar's design from Next Gen, applied very thoughtfully to the gray on gray color scheme. Like they pulled out the color bars that pop in this background without being distracting. Yeah. Like it's a lot more blues than. Yeah, they've uh, eliminated a lot of the beige, you know, and yellow. Beige. Right. And so it, a lot, it, there's a lot of purple and blue. Right. And as useless as it seems, I, I do like the master situation display behind the captain's chair. It, it, it just always seems of questionable utility to me because it looks really cool. And I well, as a, as a visual cue in, you know, on a show, 
it reminds you that you're on a starship that looks like this, even when you're on the bridge, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It just looks neat. <laughs> See, I am capable of letting some things go just because they look cool, just as long as they don't break the universe. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I managed to make it 18 minutes without doing this, and I'm going to stop. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Uh, the the, camera, the the effects work inside the asteroid is uh is pretty good. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it really does look substantially similar to Pegasus, so I'm willing to put that as a likely uh, reuse. So here they've redecorated uh, sick bay. I will say the sort of sequentially flashing LED is a bit played out, but it is 1995, I suppose. So, <laughs> like, you know, when I'm watching the doctor, like I'm seeing the look of irritation and stuff, you know, and so I'm just, I'm wondering how much of that is programmed, how much of that is emergent as far as personality goes. I do like a couple of my questions with Neelix in the cooking. I do think they leaned a little hard on the Dr. Black of Bedside Manor. Like, I understand that eventually we find that Louis, Louis Zimmerman is in fact a misanthropic jerk, but was there no one on his design team who was like, all right, we're not making a holographic counselor, but maybe we should remove the douche routines from this well, hologram. The way it was kind of portrayed was that he was sort of almost solo as a designer yeah and then uh people the design did... was rejected because yeah. it's so obnoxious so i like that they followed up on it, but it's almost like we can make holograms that are sentient we can't make holograms that aren't nasty yeah I, and it, it doesn't really bother me that much because i think robert picardo can carry it like his irritated face is right up there with Rene Auvergne's harumphing, and you know, like it's it, it's it's good, it's very good. So it's like, all right, he's acting it well enough that it's funny enough that I'll let it go. In universe, it's a little bit much. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're getting sort of the ethical dimension of the story now. You know, Neelix does not want to continue to live like this. You know, and the Doctor is sort of giving him the uh, ethical line that is, you know, par for the course in Federation society. You know, you're alive, you're breathing, I'm doing my best. And it's a very sort of Hippocratic line, too. Um, Even the Doctor's solution here is a little blunter than... Um then I think, like, a, you know, Crusher would have gone for Like, Crusher would have invested the time to actually talk him down. Or at least given him something that would relax him without sedating him. Yeah. I do like that it shows eventual growth for the program, that he does learn alternate ways to solve problems and things like that. So I suppose it's a starting point for the character, which is, which is good, narratively. So how do you feel about the House of Mirrors business? Well, 
this is one of those things where it's like the one detail too far. <laughs> you know, is there like a Vidian manufacturing plant that creates this thing? Like I, I, uh, I could accept that the, you know, interior is full of reflective surfaces that they're all polished to a crystal clear shine. That seems a little weird. Well, so yeah, maybe it could have been a naturally occurring thing that just confused sensors enough. But the visual is a little too on point. Yeah, the way the the way the effect is portraying it is that this is some sort of manufactured element. So this ship, this Vidian ship, looks almost exactly like the Batras. Yeah. And I don't care. Like that's fine. Um, you know, maybe they missed an attempt to create a new, interesting model. So here's the conversation you were talking about, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like this. It's it's good for Cass. It's good for the Doctor. It's it's just good character growth all around. I thought Tom Paris was sent here. Like I said, no one to assist me. Well, yeah, I mean, right up there with, you know, Armin Shimmerman and Rene Auberjonois, Robert Picardo can deliver sarcasm. Like, yeah. Like, it's, it's just great. Um, and, and I think that carries a lot. Like, e even in later seasons when I get a little annoyed that episodes that aren't about Seven's growth as a person, they're about the Doctor's growth as a person and not much else, I I've always liked Robert Picardo enough that it, you know... It's never unpleasant. It's it, it, it's narratively a little repetitive, but I always like watching him. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think his performance sidesteps to some degree some of our logic questions about holographic beings. You know, it's like this is only the fourth episode, and yet he already seems to have a completely developed set of human emotions. He's irritated. He's stressed out. Like. How does a computer program get stressed out, you know? Right. And so it, it, it like irritates part of me, but then another part of me is so entertained that I'm just kind of okay with it. And I guess this is kind of the introduction of the idea of Kess as being his protege. Yeah. Huh, here's Martha Hackett. Uh, the, one of the biggest sins the show ever committed was removing her from the show. She was great. Well, to be fair though, she did get two full seasons of. No, no, it's fine. I just, I, I would have loved it if after Basics, um, she survived and not Kulla, and then she's like, what, like they either took her prisoner or she's like, well, you, like, I want to go with, like, it, like find some way to keep her on Voyager or around because she was just so much fun. No, I, I think that could have been pretty interesting. It, I mean, they did that in a way with uh, Lon Suter. Yeah. Uh, which I liked as a storyline. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, you know, having the sort of evil or bad or negative character who wasn't really a part of the family anymore, but was still on the ship. You know? Yeah. So that definitely could have been interesting. And they had the whole, like, Seska Chakotay thing, which, eh. That never really did it for me. Yeah. Uh, one bit we didn't talk about was I, I like Tuvok's line about 
I advise you not to do what you are clearly about to do. It's, it's a it's a very it's a very Vulcan line, and it's a organic way to portray their relationship. Yeah, There's I think it. That, oh, go ahead. It picks up on the rapport they had in Caretaker, you know, where they know each other very very well. Uh, there's a scene in an episode that I only marginally like, but that I like that scene a lot. It's the one with the um, the hedonistic French people in their magic transporter. Yeah. And, and there's a line where she's like, I, I come to you and I need my morals checked and I depend on that. And it's a, it's a very nice scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the episode. It's irritating in some ways, but that character interplay yeah like the whole so episode good. i'm like why are they french uh but that scene was great uh i like it's really scene. just that one guy who is french too that's true but why was he french like no yeah. no one else was french um i like the effect of the ricocheting phaser it's a well-achieved a siege piece of cgi yeah and i like the makeup on the vidians i believe it portrays what we're what we eventually find out about the vidians that they are constantly grafting knew everything onto their bodies yeah. and they look like zombies yeah well and what's nice this is of course before the explosion of zombie entertainment right um but it's really nice that there are zombies who are just as fast and you know sort of devastating because of course the borg are sort of zombie like but right you know these are kind of like they're scarier yeah because they're they're real people right you know, they're just as effective as real people yet they do look like that because of their uh disease the the, the tufts of hair really really help sell it <laughs> like there's there's something about tufts of hair that just scream like uncanny valley like it's just yeah well so let's talk about kate mulgrew here you know I love this scene. Like, there's, you know, we we would be remiss to discuss Captain Janeway's role in the franchise without discussing her role as the first, you know, female Captain Anchor of the show. And what I think a scene like this does incredibly well is it portrays her being emotional and more emotional than I think even Kirk, in at his height, uh, you know, more than Cisco and his shouting. Like, this is a she's on the verge of tears. But well, her sympathy, yeah, her sympathy well, is kind of like her defining characteristic. Right, and, and it, but it doesn't read as weakness or inability in any way. Not even like I don't even think someone who didn't like the character or the show could credibly lay at this scene's feet. She's just, uh, you know, sh she's crying through all her problems. Like it, it doesn't feel like it. It just feels part of her character that she would simultaneously be outraged on behalf of what happens in Neelix and. Uh, sympathetic for what these people are going through. Yeah, the makeup people did a really good job. There's this like one patch of like blue mottled skin on the side of that guy's head that just screams that came from a species, not him. And yeah. it's it's just very effective. Like there's a piece of like reptilian skin up there. Like it all looks patchwork, which it's supposed to be, and that's really upsetting. It's like it's it's like Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And now we get to like the great ethical dilemma will she commit a murder to save a life as they were willing to and in a very starfleet way her answer is no 
Um, and oh, that's a great line. It must be impossible for you to understand how civilized people could come to this. So even the zombies are self-aware in a way. Like this guy seems more conflicted than his what, his Hanata. So I guess if you did it for a living, you would become pretty desensitized. But like, so there's even disagreement inside the Vidian culture about the appropriateness of the action. But I think somewhat logically, they portray it as you know when it's your life on the line, people do somewhat you know crazy or unethical things um so i this is a great moral story with actual stakes well so i feel like you know this is 1995 we're talking about um i feel like there must be some kind of aids parallel that's being talked about here like what if something like the aids epidemic uh had exploded to a much, much greater degree, you know, and yeah. we were talking about billions of people infected. Um, and you had the option of doing something bad to save your species. You know, would you do it? I mean, it's terrific. I like, I like the twist of the knife, the realization that they don't have the resources to imprison them forever, because it denies her any meaningful retribution. Like, e even yeah. if she could turn them over to Starfleet for trial, that would assuage, I think, part of her problem, like, you know, part of her outrage, but she can't even do that. So it's like, it's, it, it's as clear as possible. They scot-free or you kill them. There's no... There's no middle ground where they will pay for their actions, but Neelix still dies. It's either all win or all lose, and that's interesting. Yeah, they don't let her off the hook. I agree. Um, you know, I like her threat. It definitely feels real. Oh, it yeah. It feels strong. I don't think, yeah, I don't think she's kidding around. Like, I, I, I think she, she can rationalize to herself that if this became a prolonged threat, then, like any other sustained threat to their existence, they would be justified in responding with deadly force. But, like, right here, just these two guys in the room, she can't justify killing one of them to save one of her own people. Which is, and what's so interesting is that's exactly the decision the Vidians were faced with, and they picked the other answer. Yeah. Like, that's, that's interesting. And that's just good acting on Neelix's part, uh, on Ethan Phillips' part. The, the like cross-eyed focus on the on the tricorder was was great. Well, and that's the thing that right. put him in this situation. Oh, totally. So he's understandably uh, nonplussed. You know, I gotta say, uh, first nerd points for the correct usage of the word nonplussed. Um, I like that the makeup stands up so well in the brighter light. Uh, it could have looked chintzy or overdone or you know, under-constructed uh, yeah. from the transport room. But no, they look, they still look creepy. Well, and, you know, probably for the better, they don't get too uh, close in yeah. in these brightly lit scenes. But yeah, this is a really good job of makeup. Oh, yeah. And his eyes And it's really, really good on well. the hands, too. His yeah. hands are usually where things fall down. You're not here. Believe me, I wish I weren't. Like he looks like he looks like someone stripped the skin off of a person. Like it looks like musculature under there. Like it's really well done, and like the cloudy eye and all that. Like a, a lot of very subtle touches. Um, 
really drive home the story. I I have to believe they won a Emmy for this for for makeup. Well, what is impressive too is that it doesn't look like a rubber helmet, you know? Right. What I mean? Where it's like it actually still looks like it's a real head. Right. Everything moves, like especially his eyes and his mouth. Like there's, like he looks like Freddy Krueger. Like that's what I've been thinking of this whole time. Like that that's what it looks like to me. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I don't see any mentions of Emmys or nominations. Oh, that's that's a shame. So, you know, the, this whole thing is a little maybe too cute. It's like they mentioned it earlier that she wanted to donate an organ, and now she's actually the compatible one. You know, eh. I suppose it makes a certain amount of scientific sense if you want to talk about, like, maybe races in the same region of space. Right, right. Did, did, did the Delta Quadrant uh, chase people do this? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the way I read the line was that any one of them could have done it. Kess was just the one who volunteered first. Yeah. Well, and it is nice that it, it makes sense with the rules that have been given to us about the Vidians. You know, this is what they do. You know, right. they graft organs from completely radically different right, species right. onto themselves. So clearly they have the ability to do this. So it's not a deus ex machina. It's know? not, it, it, it's a, it's a little bit deus ex machina because we, we, we did eventually excuse Neelix from having to make the decision, his condition implied, but because they, they did a sufficient job of explaining the internal mechanism that it doesn't feel like a cheat. Because it, it's one of those, okay, you're clearly not killing off one of your title card characters in episode four. That's not going to happen. So we knew he was eventually going to be fine. I will say, because they did such a good job of explaining the Vidian setup, that it's the most credible deus ex machina I think Star Trek's done in a while. Yeah. Yeah, so we do get the beginning of her tutelage Tutan, Dr. Tutan so yeah I mean you've given me a lot to think about but you know no, I think they're the, oh it, it's all well done it's yeah, good like, like with Moriarty we jumped a little too quickly into sentient hologram but yeah. I get like Moriarty if it's well acted enough we'll let it slide Oh, yeah. Hey. <laughs> Daniel Davis, uh, I'll watch him be a sentient hologram, you know, till, till the cows come home. Um, I forget, which episode was it that had the conversation with the, like, jackass, like, lieutenant who sprained himself but kept talking to Kess like the doctor wasn't in the room? Am I, have we watched that one yet? Am I just missing No, we have not. It's okay. coming up soon. Okay, because I was, that's what I was thinking about was the... The, the scene with the bedside manner and him like standing up for himself. Um, yeah. But uh, so, okay, right, so writing wise, how do you feel? This is a great episode. Like we we get two really interesting philosophical questions in one episode. Um, it, we don't go as far with Neelix's as we didn't say ethics with Worf, but it, it's not bad for it. I mean, they set it up and they explored it enough to make me interested so i'm not not bothered um and that scene in the transporter room alone is worth its weight in gold it's a great ethical question with a far far better enemy than the kazon the only sin this episode commits 
is that no one paid enough attention to it to t- make this the primary villain of season one. Maybe maybe they thought they were in a Borg situation where the and it, but then they did bring them back. They brought them back like two or three times. Like, oh, yeah. if you're gonna do it, just do it. Like, really challenge us because what made them so interesting was that unlike you know like as opposed to the Borg who um you know felt nothing, these people still feel the same thing. They're the they're not the Klingons or the Romulans where they're even initially presented as um uh you know like unfeeling, uncaring, barbarous. They they acknowledge in their first episode that they have the same ethical concerns. They've simply, out of what they view as necessity, chosen to disregard them, but that doesn't mean they don't worry about it. Like, that, that's just more interesting. Like, cause, and, and I think it's what forbids Janeway from killing them for their organs. Had they been unrepentant, maybe Janeway could have gotten herself a little closer to these people are dangerous and will keep hunting us for our organs unless I stop them now. But once once they display the you know you know philosophical self awareness to struggle with what they're doing, it be there. It's definitely unconscionable to just kill them. Yeah, she can't dehumanize them. You know, um, you know she has seen them face to face. She has sort of had a sort of you know, well, an empathetic experience with them. You know, she she's feeling, at least to some degree, she's not feeling everything they're feeling, but she's feeling some of what they're feeling, you know. And as a human being, she can't help but feel that, you know. These people come from a race that was renowned as explorers and artists and educators, you know. It, it was a really great, you know, monologue for the Motura character because... Well, in three or four sentences, it totally sets up the Vidians, and it does a great job. Like, it was really evocative dialogue. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I think the Vidians are a terrific uh, villain, quote-unquote. And they're a terrific villain in the best vein of Star Trek villains. They're not evil. Right. They think they're doing the right thing. Well, I also, I also think there's an element, even in Janeway's thinking of, you know, there but for the grace of God. Like, yeah. The, the people he described was the Federation. Yeah. And not even like an uh, analog. Nope. <laughs> Explorers, educators, give everyone a hug. Like, they, that's who these people were. And there's a sense of, you know, there, there's acknowledging, what would, she, what would the Federation do if faced with that kind of catastrophic problem? You know, yeah. and, you know, it, it's one thing to say, I won't kill one life to save one life, but would you kill a handful of lives to save 10,000 lives like that. That's a bigger and slightly different question. So yeah, like I, there's a great sense of with dialogue like that, that, you know, you re question like, what would the, how would the Federation respond to that level of extinction threat? Like that's just, that's just an interesting question. So yeah, like the, the writing is great. The, well, uh, and of course the science fiction element is that it forces you, the viewer to think about, you know, it's like if the U S were beset by a plague and we could cannibalize uh, some sub-Saharan African nation, you know, Chad or something, you know. And yes, everybody in Chad would die, but 330 million Americans would live, you know. There are a lot of Americans who'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah, let's do it, you know. And then there'd be other Americans who would have problems with it, but then they'd be like, well, you know, you're talking about 330 million versus, you know, 10 million. It's acceptable. And then there'd be others who would say it's never right, 
you know. Um, so it makes us think, you know, that's the thing that Star Trek does that I think you and I both, you know, respond to very, very much is yeah. it makes you think, you know. Yeah. It forces you to consider something in a way you hadn't necessarily considered it before. So it's extremely successful on that point. Um, and I think it, it couples it with a very good character story in watching Neelix respond to this and Tess responding to it and the Doctor responding to it. It, it, it didn't get lost in its own allegory. It, the, yeah. the, what happened to Neelix, it, and, it, and it helps personalize uh, Janeway's decision. Um, you know, there, there's something more visceral about her, like she's deciding to let a crew member die despite having the means to save him because it violates her ethics. Like that's, yeah. that's, and, and, and that's kind of the job of the captain. That's, that's part of the job description to make the tough choices. So I, I appreciate that. And it, and like other great episodes with great ethical questions, it does both. There's a good science fiction story. There's a good character story and they play off each other. Yeah. They're both effective. Um, you know, acting, uh, it's another very good Kate Mulgrew performance. Um, probably her best so far. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Like like I said, like the the brink of tears. Well, br- tears are hard. They, they, that is a. If an actor can cry on command, more power to him. It is. It, it's just. It, it's both physically difficult and, as I understand it, emotionally wrenching. Like if you can actually make yourself cry on cue. What you have to do to get yourself there usually kind of screws with you for the rest of the day. So, like, yeah. if you can be on the brink of tears for the, you know, 15 takes for that for that scene, bravo. Like, that 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 was just really good. And like I said, it, it never felt, even when I was, like, a dumb 13-year-old, did it feel like, oh, the woman captain's crying because there's a problem. It's like, no, this she's visibly upset because the situation is upsetting. Like, that hit red is completely a human response to this problem. And so I thought uh, Ethan Phillips also did pretty well. Yeah. Uh, Certainly the the physical acting of, you know, being without one's lungs was very viscerally effective. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, Robert Picardo was uh, pretty good. Um, You know, the rest of the supporting players, uh, it was a pretty decent Jennifer Lean episode, too. Um, She had... For whatever we think the problems are with it, she had a good interplay yeah. with with Neelix. Um, and, you know, the guest stars were pretty decent. You know, that was a really nice... Uh, so it's Stephen Rappaport as Motura. And I feel like I've heard his voice before. Um, I guess he was on NYPD Blue, which I never watched. Uh, but he was clearly... Uh, an effective actor. Yeah, I agree. He definitely sort of believed the Vidian story. Apparently, uh, they weren't called the Vidians initially. Uh, they were called the, uh, let me look it up. I think it's like Voferins or something. And there, there are some instances where you can see dialogue was overdubbed. Uh, so that they changed it near the end and I think one of the reasons they changed it was because no one could pronounce it the same way (laughs) um yeah anyway so good acting um and frankly I 
I can't see much wrong as far as production values. It, yeah. Like the only thing maybe is the the mirror thing was a little too perfect on the nose. Yeah. But it looked good. Oh yeah, yeah. It, like it wasn't bad because it looked chintzy or over. It didn't even look CGI. Like I doubt I doubt they actually built a couple of dozen mirrors around the Voyager model, but it still looked very good. Like it didn't look artificial. I imagine that they probably built a few mirrors and then optically replicated it, so there might not have been any CGI at all. Hmm. Um, that would explain why it didn't look over CGI. Um, the makeup on the Vidians was spectacular. Um, yeah, and good. For such heavy makeup, their faces moved incredibly well. There have been other instances of far less heavily made up guest stars just getting lost under a, uh, under a plate of makeup. Um, uh, Sick Bay looked great. The, the, the Neelix's decor was appropriately tacky. Yeah. Well, and I liked the, the introduction of the kitchen set too. Yeah. You know, for whatever problems you might have with it story-wise, uh, it, it's a nice atmosphere, you know, it's, it, it was a good choice, you know, yeah. because it creates sort of the 10 forward of Voyager, you know, the sort of meeting place for characters in a more casual setting. Right. Um, yeah, you know, it, I th- kind of feel like I have to go with a five. On oh, this. No, this, is, this is a five. That transporter room scene alone is a five. Like it's, it, it is, it's the most Star Trek thing. I think the show will do in its first season. It's, it's, it's the quintessential ethical dilemma uh and and how and watching our starfleet captain respond to it especially in the uh more complicated situation they're in is great this yeah that this is hands down a five you know uh actually i don't necessarily i mean i agree it's a terrific star trek episode as star trek but actually there's quite a few very star trek stories in season one I think ex post facto is a very Star Trek story. I think uh, Caretaker is very Star Trek. I think Time and Again is very Star Trek. You know, as far as the kinds of ethical dimensions of the stories, mm. um, and uh, the kinds of se- it, it has been a while since I've watched all of season one. This one always sticks out in my head, particularly is one I really like. Oh, I, I think this is the best of them. I agree, um, but uh, I'm actually. I think some of what I'm feeling and some of what what I initially responded to in Voyager was the feeling that, you know, hit or miss, they are trying with each story, at least through the first three seasons, to tell very Star Trek stories. You know, there was a tonal shift once Seven of Nine came on the show, and I don't think it was for the worse. I do think they kept telling pretty good Star Trek stories. But uh, there's just there's just a very clear... Um, you know, it's like we are going to a different place in space to show whether Star Trek ideals survive in this other place, you know, and as such, they have to keep, you know, bringing out sort of the, the tenets of the civilization, um, to see if they still stick, you know, um, and you're, you know, so this is a, a very good example of it. But I think uh, the first 
the first portion of Voyager is pretty replete with uh, examples of this kind of story being told. So, you know, uh, it's going to hit a wall. Yes, it will. The Kazon are coming, folks. But so far, uh, Voyager is, you know, really cranking on all cylinders. Um, you know, got four pretty well-rated episodes all in a row uh, starting out. Um, you know, let me see. Trying to think of TOS. You had uh, the Man Trap, Charlie X. Charlie X. Yeah, the hmm. <laughs> well, you know still a pretty decent Star Trek story, uh, but just kind of annoying. Yeah. Uh, the Corbomite maneuver, very Star Trek. Um, Mud's Women, mm. where no man has gone before. Yeah, that's a good one. S spectacular. Superb episode. Um, you know, I don't like. Look, TOS has a sort of veil of being an icon, being a you know universally loved thing, you know, and Voyager doesn't. So maybe it's hard to compare. But you know, I think this is the strongest start since TOS, anyway. Whether or not it's stronger, certainly the most consistent. Like, <laughs> and as far as characters, I mean, these four episodes so far, and I'll argue the whole season. You know, you can you can criticize anything you want, but these characters are really involving. You know, they're really engrossing to me. Like, I care. It's only been four episodes, and I care pretty strongly about at least three or four of them. And you know, as things go on. I'm going to care about a good six or seven of them, you know, in the way that, like, take TNG. It didn't happen right away in the first season. Yeah. You, know? you were still, I mean, there was an initial liking for all of them, I think. And, you know, you can disagree with me if you like, but I, I think you agree with me. Um, you know, there, there was an initial liking for them, but... It didn't necessarily. It didn't totally blossom to love and until totally season gel. three. Yeah. Well, I mean, I might even argue some of season two, but, um, you know, like maybe they got to Haven a little too quickly. Uh, you know, maybe Tasha Yar was never particularly well developed, and certainly characters like Jordy and Worf were kind of in the background a bit. You know, um, it was. There were, there were more Riker stories and Data stories, Picard stories. Um, and yeah, actually, Counselor Troy didn't get a whole hell of a lot to do <laughs> for the first couple seasons. Um, it was really the child um, yeah. that was her first sort of stepping out. Because Haven, eh, <laughs> not particularly good. Um, Loxana's fun performance notwithstanding. Yeah. Uh, you know, so look, I, I'm trying not to just be knee jerk about it and say, you know, I love Voyager, thus everything that Voyager is doing is good. I'm trying to be objective and open minded, but I feel objectively, open mindedly, you know, there, it's really good so far, you know, and I will criticize it when it gets bad, and it will get bad. Yeah, I'm trying to remember my response. Uh I don't think I ever responded to Paris the way you did. I just never felt the same 
affinity for him. I did always like Janeway, I did always like the Doctor, and I, after Faces, I always liked Bolana. Like, I'm not saying I disliked her before that, but, like, I really thought the character came into her own in that episode. Um, I never really did, Kess and Harry never did anything for me. Um, Chakotay very quickly became a non-entity for me. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to think very hard about what I remember thinking, because this was, there's a lot of overlapping Star Trek in my life for the next few years, and I'm trying to remember what I thought about stuff. But in any event, uh, that is a 10 out of 10 for, for the phage. Very good episode. Certainly uh, the best the series has done so far. Um, so it's a fourth episode. Um, but yeah, very good episode. I, I like it a lot, um, and I think there's a lot to like. Um, so I, I, think th- I think that's it. Yeah, I think this is fairly a 10. I, I, I don't think we're, you know being overly charitable here i think it's objectively just quite good um and i think it stands up against you know the top 10 percent uh i think it will be in the top 10 percent of voyager as a series um you know i'm looking at voyager's first season and i think this is going to turn out to be a pretty highly rated season i think it's going to be season two that uh, the average dips <laughs> quite a bit, so it's gonna it's gonna be an interesting pattern because up until now, um, I mean, of course, TOS started high and then diminished with each season, uh, but both TNG and Deep Space Nine have had sort of uh, meager beginnings, peaks in the middle, and then you know some fall off. Um, well, maybe DS, DS9 might be different, you know. Maybe it's got, you know, the war stuff a lot of people like, so we'll see. But this one, I think it's going to, like, start strong, get weak, and then get strong again. Uh, we'll see. Uh, yeah, all right. Well, good night, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the phage. Um, stay healthy. <laughs> Don't steal any organs. All right, have a good night, everyone. <laughs>